Hi, I'm Desiree. Welcome to My Dark Happy Place. Hello, how is everyone? I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining me for episode number eight, our first episode of 2024. Before I get into the case today, I do just want to say if you missed the update on Instagram, Apple Podcasts is back up and working. So if that's your normal listening platform, you can head over there and all future episodes will be available and you can catch up on any past episodes you missed as well. So for today's case, I thought it was going to be a single murder case about a young girl, but turns out there was way more to it. The man who killed this young girl is tied to a lot more crimes, and nobody knew the full extent of his evil until about 30 years later. These are the crimes of Dennis Bowman. Cue the trigger warning. Today's episode is intended for mature audiences only. The topic today contains real events that happen to real people. There will be descriptions of very sensitive subjects, such as child sexual assault, rape, dismemberment, kidnapping, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Alright, so, Dennis Lee Bowman was born on March 14, 1949 in Muskegon, Michigan. I have very limited information as to his upbringing. He had five sisters and a little brother. He claims that his mother never told him, I love you, and that his dad would beat him with a belt to punish him. He claims he was the only one of his siblings to get that abuse from his father. He also said that his parents often didn't remember his birthday. So he, according to him, didn't have a good childhood at all. Around the age of 20, he got married to a woman named Brenda, and she was a heavier set woman with curled bangs who worked at the jewelry counter at Meyer. Dennis had been in the Navy Reserves, and he had reddish-brown hair, a goatee, and wore wire-rimmed glasses. At some point, the couple ended up in Virginia. I don't know if Dennis and Brenda moved there, or if he was in the Reserves there and that's where he met Brenda. Either way, they were in Virginia now. Dennis and Brenda decided they wanted to start a family, and right around March of 1976, they adopted 21-month-old baby girl, who was named Alexis Miranda Badger. She had been born on June 23, 1974, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her biological mother, 17-year-old Kathy Turkanian, had placed Alexis up for adoption at five months old. We're going to take a second and talk about Kathy, because she does come back later in the episode. Now, Kathy didn't have the best upbringing. She was one of six kids, and some of the kids had different dads, so Kathy had a stepdad. Her stepdad was in the Navy, and they moved around a lot, seven times before she was in the seventh grade to be exact. That had to be tough, never having one place to be able to settle into and get a consistent group of friends going or anything like that. It had to be tough moving around that much as a kid. Her mom, Shirley, was very overwhelmed by the children, especially one of Kathy's siblings who had epilepsy. By the age of 12, Kathy had been molested by one of her mom's friend's husbands, and she'd also been raped. In 1972, at 14, Kathy ran away from her home in Virginia and hitchhiked her way to Memphis, Tennessee. Once she made it to Tennessee, she took a Greyhound to New Orleans, and this is where she met 19-year-old Randy Badger. He'd also hitchhiked his way to New Orleans, but he had come from L.A. 
Randy and Kathy hit it off right away. They started spending a lot of time together, eventually moving in together, and they both started working at a circus sideshow together. In December of 1972, she and Randy went to South Carolina and they got married, with her parents' permission, of course, because he was an adult and she was a minor. Within less than a year, she was pregnant with baby Alexis. Kathy did her best to keep up with caring for Alexis and working, being only about 16 years old, and Randy, the adult in the situation, who was about 21, should have been the responsible one, but he was more interested in women and partying. Kathy's final straw with Randy was when she came home and found him making out with some woman on the couch in the living room while he let his five-month-old daughter, Alexis, ball in the back bedroom. Kathy went back to find Alexis lying there alone without a diaper. How disgusting and a piece of shit do you have to be to let your baby ball in the back so that you could get it on with some lady on the couch? And as for the lady, you didn't have a problem with that? Anyways, Kathy didn't hesitate to leave the situation. She took Alexis and left Randy and went back to her mom in Virginia. Once she got there, she found out that her mom Shirley had been diagnosed with terminal breast cancer and had a five-year life expectancy. This means that Kathy was not just responsible for herself and Alexis now. She's also responsible for providing for her mom and her siblings as well. There was one day where Kathy ran out of formula for Alexis and she started to doubt herself as a mother. Her mom Shirley took this opportunity to picket Kathy and tell her that she wouldn't be able to be a mom, that she wouldn't be able to take care of Alexis and she'd be better off if she just gave her up for adoption. Shirley didn't really like having her own kids around, and she definitely didn't like having Alexis there. This idea stuck with Kathy, and so she did eventually put Alexis up for adoption with Christian Charities. After she put Alexis up for adoption, Kathy moved out on her own and eventually would meet her current husband, but they never went on to have children together. Alexis was in foster care for a little bit when the Bowmans adopted her, and when they did, they changed her name from Alexis to Andrea Michelle. Throughout the rest of the episode, I'm going to refer to her as Andrea because that's what she's called in all the reportings and all the news articles, just so there's no confusion. After the couple adopted Andrea, things were good for a little while. They'd moved to Holland, Michigan, back into Dennis's home state, and things were going well until Dennis was arrested for the attempted assault and rape of 19-year-old woman in May of 1980. We're going to call this woman Gloria. Gloria was out riding her bike when a man on a motorcycle pulled up and forced her off the road. The man told her to get into the woods, and when she didn't move, he pulled out a gun and shot, but intentionally missed her. She was frozen, probably in shock, and she didn't move and comply with his demands, so he shot again, this time aiming near her feet. He told her that if she didn't move this time and follow his demands, that the next time he shot the gun, he'd make sure that he hit her. Just then, luckily for Gloria, a passing car distracted the man, and when he turned to look, she was able to pedal away on her bike. The man with the gun did chase her for a little bit, but she was able to flag down a pickup truck, and the pickup truck took her home, and the man ended his pursuit. Once she was home, she told the police about the incident, saying that a man tried to lure her into the woods in what she believed was an attempt to rape her. Gloria described the man as a white male with tinted glasses and a blue helmet, saying that his motorcycle had a blacktop case on the back of it. Based on that description, police picked up Dennis, and Gloria went down later that day to identify him out of a lineup. He pled guilty to assault with intent to commit criminal sexual conduct in 1981, and prosecution gave him a deal, of course, and he was sentenced to 5 to 10 years. A psyche eval was done, and based on that, the judge decided that Dennis would be a danger to women if he was released. 
Brenda stayed by his side the entire time, supporting him through all of it. The fact that the judge and the psych eval said that Dennis would, keyword, would, be a danger to women if he was released might make you think that he'd end up serving out the heftier end near the 10-year maximum part of a sentence. But no, of course not. He was released after the minimum of five years in 1986. While he was in jail, there's a gap of information. We don't really know much about what was going on with the Bowmans besides him being in jail, but we do know that Andrea was in middle school and she was part of the school band. At the beginning of her freshman year of high school, Dennis and Brenda had a little girl of their own named Vanessa in October of 1987. Now, that's not to say that Andrea wasn't theirs. I'm just meaning that Vanessa was biologically their child. This wasn't another adopted child. Apparently, Andrea was more like a parent to Vanessa than she was a sister. Andrea wouldn't go to the football games after school or attend any after-school activities because she had to rush home to take care of Vanessa. She even kept a picture of her in her folder at school. I saw reports that one time Andrea came to school with bloody wrist, and there were a couple rumors surrounding that. The first one was that she'd tried to kill herself, and the second one was that she'd stayed out late one night, and when she tried to come home, she found the house had been locked up and Dennis and Brenda would not let her in. So she broke a window to try and get into the house, and that's where her bloody wrist came from. I don't know which one's the real story, but just from the sounds of those few things, it seems like... Dennis and Brenda put a lot of unnecessary pressure on her, and if they did lock her out of the house at, what, 13, 14 years old, they didn't treat her very well. Toward the end of Andre's freshman year of high school in 1988, things took a bad turn for the Bowmans. 14-year-old Andre went to her friend's house one day and didn't want to go back home when it was time to leave. It wasn't one of those situations where it's, oh my gosh, I'm having so much fun, ask your mom if I can stay the night. She didn't want to go home because she said that Dennis was molesting her. The friend's mom let her stay in the night, and the next day at school, she told officials about this abuse. They called the police in right away, and she told the police the same thing, that Dennis was molesting her. A social worker ended up taking Andrea home at the end of the day, and Dennis and Brenda both denied the accusations. They said that Andrea had only made them up because she just found out about her adoption and she was rebelling. That seemed to be good enough for the social worker, and Andrea was left at the house with no further questions. Quickly, after the allegations were brought up, the Bowman family moved to a mobile home in Holland, Michigan. After the move, Andrea ended up saying that she lied about the abuse. This is a big red flag. Someone reports abuse, then they move, now they're saying that they had lied in the first place. I feel like she knew what would happen if she didn't keep her mouth shut. And she probably didn't want to be removed from the house and leave Vanessa there all alone. Although she did report to authorities that she'd made it up, she confided in one of the moms from her youth church group, a woman named Arlene. She told Arlene that Dennis was molesting her and that Brenda knew and didn't care. Arlene didn't want to get involved, so she told Andrea to go talk to the youth pastor. Dennis confronted Arlene a short while later, telling her to stay out of his business. So she did. She never reported the incident until much later. So many people failed Andrea along the way. On March 11th of 1989, Brenda went to watch Andrea and a band festival at her school, and this would be the last time she'd be seen alive by her adoptive parents. Supposedly. If you didn't already have an inkling as to where this is going, you can probably tell now. Later on that same day, Andrea was reported missing by Dennis while Brenda was at work after the band festival. 
Dennis said he'd been out visiting with family, and when he came home, he saw that Andrea had stolen about $100 from them and that she seemed to have run away. Dennis told police that Andrea was a troubled girl and that she frequently fought with Brenda and had once run away to a friend's house. Dennis called around to Andrea's friends and asked if they knew anything, and police originally didn't suspect anything. I don't know how they didn't, based on the reports that were made, weren't there a paper trail to tell them that something was wrong? After a little bit, the police did briefly investigate Dennis, but they said there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with any wrongdoing. He wasn't ruled out as a suspect, but he was never formally considered a suspect either. Based on Dennis's word and the short investigation, police categorized Andrea as an endangered runaway and moved on with the investigation, passing it off to the Youth Services Bureau. Brenda told police that Andrea had actually stolen $150 out of their dresser, not the originally reported $100. Because of this stolen money, police ended up issuing a warrant for Andrea for larceny, listing Dennis as the victim. Was that necessary to issue a warrant for the missing child for stealing an extra $50? From time to time, Brenda would call police with tips about sightings of Andrea. She called them at the end of March, saying that Andrea had been found in a 7-Eleven, and then again in June, said that she heard Andrea had been seen hanging out with a group of boys. Then in October, she told police that a friend said they saw Andrea at the checkout counter at Meyer, and that Andrea had dyed her hair and that she was pregnant. Nothing ever came of these tips. In 1990, Andrea was still missing, with no leads, and the Bowmans ended up moving to Hamilton, Michigan, which is a city that's a couple miles from Holland. Andrea's missing poster has her listed as a white female with brown hair, green eyes, about 5'5", and 115 pounds. It says that she has pierced ears and that she might have bleached her hair, and she's also known to answer to Alexis or Alex. 1993 rolled around and Andrea was still not found and there were no solid leads as to her whereabouts. A band named Soul Asylum made a video for their song Runaway Train and in this video they feature pictures of missing kids. Andrea's picture was one of those featured in the music video along with 35 other missing children. As of 2019, 24 of the missing children featured in this video have been returned home or have been found deceased. Andrea was not one of those 24. In 1998, nine years after her disappearance, Dennis had not changed his ways. He broke into 28-year-old Vicki Vandenbrink's house in Ottawa County and stole her lingerie and some of her other belongings. Vicki and Dennis were co-workers. She said that Dennis was a disgusting and creepy guy. She said his nickname at work was Hack and Scratch because he was always hacking and scratching himself, which is just gross. Apparently, Vicky had been suspecting him of breaking into her home two times a week for months. She'd find broken doors, windows, and notice that her blinds had been broken off at the bottom, which would allow people to look into her window, even if the blinds were closed. Because her house was being broken into so often, the police actually installed a security system for her with a silent alarm. After the system was installed, Dennis broke in again. The police were notified that the alarm went off, and an officer responded, and found Dennis sneaking away from the back door. The officer stopped Dennis and was like, hey man, what are you doing? And Dennis, being caught red-handed, leaving the scene of a crime, was just like, oh yeah, my bad officer. My wife Brenda and I are actually staying with Vicky for a while. And the officer was just like, oh okay, sorry sir, didn't mean to bother you. Go on about your day. And just let him leave. After letting him leave, that's when the officer decided, oh, I should probably call Vicky and make sure this is true, that this is an actual situation. So he called Vicky and she's like, no, 
Dennis is not staying with me. So the officer realized Dennis lied to him. I don't know why the officer didn't think to detain Dennis and call Vicky and then let him go if she corroborated his story. Doesn't make sense to show up to a break-in and then have somebody there sneaking away and just let them go. Might as well have just not shown up in the first place. Dennis was picked up by police not long after they discovered his lie, and this time he had a different story. This time he said he'd actually gone there to use the bathroom, saying that when his daughter Vanessa was selling Girl Scout cookies, he'd been there and so he was familiar with the house and didn't think it was a big deal to just stop in and use her bathroom. The police were like, ah ah, you lied before, I don't believe you, and they asked to search his property, to which he agreed. In an outbuilding loft, the police found a black duffel bag full of Vicky's lingerie, a short barrel shotgun, a black sweatshirt, a mask, and they found pry bars in his truck. What would he have done if Vicky was there? They found the shotgun and a mask with the lingerie that he stole, so why would he have taken a gun with him if he wasn't planning to use it? After finding all of that, he was arrested for breaking and entering. Dennis wrote a letter to the judge before sentencing that basically said he was a dad and that it was the most important thing to him, saying, quote, I am the father of two lovely daughters, one 25 and the other 11, and feel that being a parent is one of the most important and sobering things a person can undertake, unquote. He didn't mention the fact that Andrea was missing for 11 years since she was 14 years old. His attorney wrote up a sentencing memorandum and made sure not to include any of his prior charges, like the time he'd spent in jail for attacking Gloria and the prior break-ins at Vicky's that police believe he'd been involved in. His lawyer also presented letters from those who were close to Dennis to show that he had good character and was a stand-up guy. The letters that were given to the judge were from a counselor who ran Dennis's sex offender group treatment program, the principal of Vanessa's elementary school, Dennis's boss, and a congregant at Christ Memorial Church who noted that Dennis had taught Sunday school to kindergartners for the past six years. So sometimes when I'm writing these things, I don't notice all the little details because I'm just trying to get all the information down. But when I read it back, I notice things sometimes. And this is one of those things. The counselor of the sex offender group treatment program that Dennis was in wrote a letter saying that he was a great guy, but the judge just seemed to bypass the sex offender part, didn't question why he was part of this program, why he was listed as a sex offender. If he had, that would have led to the prior charge for Gloria coming up, right? Because the lawyer had left that out of the memorandum. But then also, on top of that, a man who's in sex offender treatment is teaching kindergartners in a Sunday school. A sex offender is teaching children did they not do a background check? One of the other letters was from Brenda. Dennis's wife wrote a letter in regards to his behavior and said that, quote, sometimes we don't realize a problem until it confronts us face to face, unquote. Dennis was sentenced to about a year in jail and was ordered to pay restitution charges to Vicky for the home damage that he had caused. After a short sentence in jail for stealing Vicky's lingerie, he went quiet. I didn't see any new allegations or charges for new crimes against him after he got out. He would have been about 50 at this time when he was released, so maybe he realized he was too old to be doing these things to actually get away with them, but who knows. As for the search for Andrea, it was still cold, but no leads, no tips, nothing of the sort, until 2009. 
a man named Carl Kobelman became interested in trying to help solve missing person cases when J.C. Duggard was found after 18 years of being missing. Now, I'm sure that if you're into true crime, you know who J.C. Duggard is, but if you don't, here's a brief overview. J.C. was kidnapped in Lake Tahoe, California at 11 years old, and she'd been kept in the backyard of her abductor's home in tents and sheds in Antioch, California, and all of it went unnoticed, even to parole officers that would show up at the house. She was rescued after her abductor was found with two young kids at a college campus, and a security guard got a weird feeling. There's a lot more to this case, obviously, and I probably will cover it at some point down the line, but I just wanted to give you some information as to who J.C. was if you didn't know. So back to Carl. Carl had been an attorney for a long time until his mom became ill and then he became her full-time caretaker. After hearing about J.C., he started doing research into the National Database of Missing Persons and Unidentified Bodies, which is called NAMIS, and he started looking through those unidentified persons, trying to connect them with any unsolved missing persons cases by using his drawing skills in a computer program to superimpose the faces over the bodies. He'd look into similarities in ages, body composition, location, things like that. Carl had been looking into a case from Wisconsin that was called the Racine County Jane Doe. The Racine County Jane Doe had been dead for about 12 hours when she was found in a field in Raymond, Wisconsin in 1999, but there was no evidence because rain had washed everything away. It seemed to detectives that this body had been dumped there rather than killed there. The Racine County Jane Doe had been severely abused and neglected. It was estimated she was between 18 and 30, 5 foot 8, about 120 pounds, with green hazel eyes and short red-brown hair, both ears being double-pierced. He'd looked at a couple possible matches to who this Jane Doe could be, but one really stuck out to him, and that was Andrea. Andrea would have been 25 years old that year that the body was found, in Holland, Michigan is just across the lake from Wisconsin where the Jane Doe was found. He superimposed the images and noticed a lot of similarities. He took that info to police and they thought it was a good possibility, but they didn't have any DNA to prove it. They couldn't use Dennis or Brenda because Andrea was adopted, so they needed to find Kathy. I told you she'd come back. Kathy had not heard anything about Andrea since the adoption. She did try once to contact her through the agency around 1990 when Andrea was about 15 and already missing, but she didn't know that. Kathy learned that it had been a closed adoption, so she wasn't able to find out anything about Andrea at all, not even that she was missing. After that, the next time she heard anything in regards to Andrea was in April of 2010 when she got a letter from a social worker. The letter said Andrea disappeared from Michigan back in 1989 and that the police in Wisconsin had a dead body that could be hers and they needed DNA to prove one way or the other. The letter referred to Andrea as her birth name, Alexis, and gave no further details. It didn't have any contact information for police that were handling the missing person case all these years. Didn't have the city that Andrea had gone missing from. And like I said, it didn't even have her new adoptive name, Andrea Bowman. Kathy agreed to give the DNA, but now she wanted to know what happened to Andrea. She started looking online for missing girls from Michigan and found one that matched Alexis's birthday and description pretty quickly. The match she found was Andrea Bowman from Holland, Michigan. Shockingly to Kathy... Andrea had not been adopted through Christian Charities. Andrea instead had ended up with the Virginia Department of Social Services. Shirley, Kathy's mom, had told the agency that Andrea had been born with fetal alcohol syndrome and that Kathy had been taking LSD when she was pregnant, neither of which were true. That's why Kathy was surprised to find it was closed adoption, because that's not what she had signed up for, but Shirley had made it that way. Just 
because she didn't want her own kids. She didn't want to see her daughter being happy as a mother. After finding the possible match, Kathy went on a website called classmates.com where she was able to somehow come in contact with Carl. The two shared a similar thought that the Jane Doe was probably Andrea, so they started talking and they worked together to try and get down to the bottom of things. They gathered the DNA from Kathy so that it could be tested. They fixed up a Facebook page that Kathy made for Andrea and hoped to hear something soon. While they were waiting, Kathy got a hold of a retired Michigan detective that knew of Andrea's case, Detective Pat O'Reilly. Detective O'Reilly told Kathy that he believed police had botched the case from the jump, and he urged her to look back into Dennis, so she did just that. She submitted a Freedom of Information request on Dennis, and that's when she learned of his criminal history. After that, it all started to click for her. She believed that Dennis killed Andrea. She started making Facebook posts about Dennis on the page that she had made, accusing him of having something to do with the disappearance and using his record as her proof. She and Carl went to Missing in Michigan, which is a conference organized by the Michigan State Police designed to raise awareness about cold cases and hopefully generate some leads. Kathy was surprised to find Brenda and Vanessa were both there as well. Kathy went off on Brenda saying things like how could she not have done something and calling out Dennis again, accusing him of being involved in Andrea's disappearance. Carl was able to talk with Brenda despite Kathy's outburst. Brenda told him that she and Dennis had cooperated with police, even showing him the binder that she kept with notes and tips and missing flyers that she had made. She was fully convinced that Andrea had simply just run away and she didn't believe that Dennis had anything to do with it. Carl asked Brenda about Dennis's criminal history, and she said of course she didn't forget what he had done, but that she'd forgiven him because she took marriage very seriously. Kathy went off again about the abuse and the starvation that she heard Andrea had supposedly suffered under Brenda and Dennis's care. This is when Vanessa jumped in, coming to her mom's defense against Kathy, and eventually they all ended up parting ways after the screaming match before things escalated any further. Kathy and Carl hired Jeffrey Floor, which is a former Michigan State trooper, to help them look into Andrea's case even more. He got Andrea's file from police and discovered papers from her original molestation accusations four months before she disappeared. The report showed the police went out to see about the abuse allegations, but that they decided they were untrue after very little investigation. And that's how kids fall through the cracks. Getting the testing done on the Racine Jane Doe took a couple years because she had to be exhumed for the testing, but in 2013, through DNA profiling, which is a process similar to a paternity test, they were able to determine that the Jane Doe was not Andrea. In November of 2019, it was discovered that the Racine County Jane Doe was a woman named Peggy Johnson, who'd been beaten and killed by a woman named Linda LaRoche. A few days after the discovery, Linda was arrested for the murder and convicted in March of 2022, her first-degree murder, and sentenced to life without parole. Allegan County Sheriff Detective Chris Haversink took over Andrea's case sometime around 2013 and would meet with Kathy or Carl whenever they were in the area, and he agreed that Dennis was suspicious, but that there wasn't really much they could do without any real hard proof. Kathy was very convinced that Dennis had murdered Andrea, even without having concrete proof. She said, quote, I found out this horrible person's background and I deducted that nobody else would have done this to her, unquote. Kathy said that she thought Dennis had killed Andrea and then buried her in their backyard. The idea came about after the convention where she had met up with Brenda. When they left, she and Carl went and sat outside the Bowman's house looking on Google Maps and watching the home. 
After zooming in on Google Maps, Kathy saw a concrete slab, like a patio in the backyard, and she believed this is where Andrea would be. In November of 2019, at 70 years old, Dennis Bowman was arrested for the 1980 murder of Kathleen Doyle. No, you didn't miss anything. I haven't told you about Kathleen yet. For almost 40 years, there was no suspicion that Dennis was involved at all. Kathleen Doyle was a 25-year-old woman who had been found murdered inside of her home in Norfolk, Virginia on September 11th of 1980. Before her murder, Kathleen had her friend Vivian Mahoney over the night of September 9th. They drank some wine, had a girls' night, and just some conversation. Vivian left between 9 and 9.30 that night. The next day, she called Kathleen in the morning and then again at night, but she got no answer, which was strange to her. On September 11th, Vivian called Kathleen again for a third time, and she still got no answer. So her and her husband, James, drove to Kathleen's at 9432 Granby Street. At about 12 p.m., they pulled up, and as Vivian walked to the door, she noticed that the screen door was unlocked, the porch light was on, there was mail in the mailbox still, two newspapers at the front door. And all of that was very strange for Kathleen because she was somebody that was normally on top of everything. Vivian looked through the small window next to the door and saw the wine glasses were still on the table from when she and Kathleen had been drinking when she was over there that night on September 9th. She knocked on the front door and it opened on its own, so she walked in. Everything in the living room looked normal besides the wine glasses being out, so Vivian made her way to Kathleen's bedroom and saw Kathleen lying on the floor. Vivian ran back out to her husband, John, telling him that she'd found Kathleen, so John ran into the house and took note of the bedroom. The mattress was not on the bed right, it had been pushed askew, so he guessed that there'd been a struggle. James checked Kathleen's pulse on her wrist, but he didn't find one. He noticed there was dried blood around her, and some electrical cords had been wrapped around her. Both James and Vivian tried to call the police, but this was before cell phones. They weren't able to get the phone in Kathleen's kitchen to work, so James ran next door to call for the police. Once forensics got there, they determined that the mouthpiece of the phone, like the old landline phones, the inside of the mouthpiece part had been removed so that no one on the other end could hear the person that was talking. Kathleen had been raped and murdered in her Ocean View neighborhood while her husband, Lieutenant Stephen Doyle, was deployed with the U.S. Navy as a pilot aboard the USS Eisenhower in the Indian Ocean. He'd been deployed since April. The couple had only been married nine months, and this means that he was deployed for about five months of their marriage. They didn't even get a chance to enjoy being married to each other for long before he had to leave, and now they would never get that chance. Not only was her husband part of the Navy, but she was also the daughter of a naval officer. Kathleen had hopes of one day becoming an author, so she'd recently taken up journaling. It wasn't a good sight when the police showed up to examine the room. Like I said, the mattress was pushed out of its normal position. Kathleen was surrounded by dried blood, lying on the floor, wrapped in electrical cords. Kathleen had been stripped, gagged, and had her hands tied behind her back. There was a burn mark on her cheek, which was about the diameter of a cigar. She'd been punched and had blunt force trauma to her face and her mouth, and she was kicked in the stomach. Kathleen had been strangled with an electrical cord and then had been stabbed in the back as well as two times on the left side of her chest. One of her rib bones was fractured because it had actually stopped the knife from fully penetrating her chest on one of the stabs. She'd also been sexually assaulted. There was semen that was found on Kathleen as well as on her green bedspread, which was collected for testing. It was determined that she'd been dead for about two days when she was found based on the rigor mortis and the medical examiner's autopsy. Police searched her home and found that while all of the downstairs windows were closed, 
there were at least nine unlocked windows in the house. At the back of the house, there was a piece of wood underneath a utility meter that was outside of the house. This was used to stand on to get to an upper window, and the screen had been raised in her spare bedroom. They found a knife on her dresser, and they also found a marble rolling pin next to her body. So I wonder if she grabbed it for self-defense or if Dennis had used it to beat her. The police checked the house for fingerprints, but they didn't find any in the room besides her own, Vivian's, and John's. They did find a random fingerprint on an envelope, but it wasn't near her body, and I couldn't find out if they figured out whose print that was ever. Police checked phone records, and it appeared that at about 9.30 p.m. on September 9th, so shortly after Vivian left, Kathleen had called a friend long distance out of state, and then around 11 p.m., Kathleen's mom tried calling her, but Kathleen didn't answer. So Kathleen had murdered some time between that 9.30 call to her friend and her mom calling at 11 p.m. Police didn't have any real leads to go on or any suspects in the case, and they assumed it had been a stranger that had broken and killed Kathleen. Like I said, they found semen at the scene and it was collected for testing, but it would be years before anyone was suspected in her murder. In 1983, serial killer Henry Lee Lucas was arrested in Texas. This relates, I promise. Just stay with me for a second. I know there's a lot going on in this case. Henry Lee Lucas had a partner named Otis Elwood Toole, and they killed alongside each other. Henry was convicted of 11 counts of murder altogether, including his own mom, and Otis was convicted of six. Both of these guys are known for saying they committed about 600 murders across the United States. Norfolk Sergeant Robert Hazelette believed that Henry and maybe Otis could have been responsible for Kathleen's murder. Henry had told Chesapeake officer who flew down to Texas, Detective C.S. Griggs, that he had killed two women after they broke into their home around Norfolk and one was in 1976 and one was in 1980. Hazelette said the 1976 confession wasn't true because they didn't have any unsolved murders from that year but that Kathleen's from 1980 was a good possibility. Norfolk police got a warrant for the arrest of Henry Lee Lucas, and when they spoke with him, he said he remembered killing Kathleen. He told police that he'd gone up to her door to ask for water and that Kathleen let him in. He says eventually he got up to her bedroom, and that's when he sexually assaulted her. He said while he was attacking Kathleen in the bedroom, Otis, Otis's niece Frida, and his nephew Frank were in the house looking for things to steal and just kind of rummaging around. He said that Frank had actually been the one to take apart the speaker on the phone in the house. He got a lot of these details right, it seems, so he has to be the guy. Except he wasn't. In 1985, Henry came out and said that he actually had lied about almost all the murder confessions, except for three people that he had actually killed. Both Henry and Otis' confessions were questioned because of the fact that they admitted to murders that happened while they were in completely different states, at the same time as those murders, which would have made it impossible for them to have been the killers. In Kathleen's case, Henry's confession was determined to be untrue because it was confirmed that Henry and Otis were in Florida on September 9th, 10th, and 11th when she would have been killed. This left police with no leads and a lot of time wasted on hope rather than evidence. Years and years went by, and in 2001, Norfolk Police homicide detective Donnie Narell looked at the evidence in Kathleen's case again to see if they could find any new leads. This is when he realized the DNA from the bedspread had never been tested. He sent it in and it was confirmed that there was indeed sperm on it and it also provided a DNA profile, but it wasn't able to tell them who the person was exactly. Kathleen's father, John O'Brien, was upset with detectives because he felt that police hadn't looked into her case much further beyond Henry and Otis. 
He said they were too hyper-focused and just trying to clear the books rather than finding the actual killer, saying, quote, It is my opinion that my daughter's case might have been solved long ago if only the Norfolk Police Department had not been duped into believing a national-scale hoax perpetrated by Henry Lee Lucas, unquote. John died in 2016 without knowing who was really responsible for killing his daughter. In 2018, Norfolk Police Department cold case detectives Victor Powell and John Smith, along with the NCIS, which is the Naval Criminal Investigation Service, partnered with Parabon Nano Labs to use genetic genealogy to solve Kathleen's case. On November 4th of 2019, police received a list of 30 possible people that could have been responsible for the semen that was found at the scene, from Parabon, meaning that one of those 30 people would have been Kathleen's murderer. Of course, they wanted to collect samples from each of those potential people, but those suspects were all over the U.S., which would have made it rather difficult. Everything started to fall into place 10 days after receiving the list. On November 14th, Norfolk police were at a cold case convention, and by happenstance, Michigan State Police were there as well. Norfolk Police cold case detective John Smith was having a conversation with a Michigan State Police officer about the Parabon findings because there was a man on the list named Dennis Bowman who lived in Michigan. Michigan State Police told Detective Smith that they knew who Bowman was and even had his DNA on file. Apparently, at some point, Dennis and Brenda had gone to the Allegan County Sheriff's Office to report Kathy for online harassment. While they were there, the police offered Dennis a water bottle, and he accepted it and then left it behind. They used that bottle to pull saliva for DNA and fingerprints, and that's how his DNA got into their system. I guess there were some officers that were skeptical of him all of these years and never really had any solid proof, but he was on their radar, so they thought to collect his DNA when they had a chance. Detectives Powell and Smith asked Michigan State Police to send over their DNA profile of Dennis so that they could compare it to the DNA profile that was on Kathleen's bedspread. After comparison, it was a match, and on November 20th, Norfolk Police got an arrest warrant for Dennis Bowman. Altogether, it took the Norfolk Police Cold Case Department, the NCIS, the Norfolk Commonwealth Attorney Office, the Allegan County Sheriff's, Michigan Sheriff's Office, and the Michigan State Police to get the evidence to arrest Dennis. Nice to see police actually working together and sharing the information to solve a case instead of just having an ego contest. Dennis Bowman was arrested by Michigan State Police two days later on November 19th of 2019. His bail was set at 200000 cash charity. Dennis was interrogated by Norfolk Police Detective John Smith, and he confessed to being drunk and breaking into Kathleen's home. He said he'd been out at a bar drinking, and on his walk home, he saw her house and decided to break in and see what he could find. He said he was so drunk that he nearly fell through the window as he was entering the house. He said once he was in the house, he started looking around, and he ended up going through a door and entering a room, which turned out to be Kathleen's bedroom. He says when he walked into her room, she got startled and started screaming, and he took out his pocket knife and, during the struggle, stabbed Kathleen in the front side of her chest. So if she was actually in bed and he's telling the truth about this night, the rolling pin most likely wasn't for self-defense because why would she be sleeping with a rolling pin? Dennis says that he then blacked out and said, Lady, I'm leaving, and walked out the front door of her house and that she was alive when he left. Seems like that's not the whole story to me, and Detective Smith didn't think so either. So he asked Dennis to draw a sketch of the floor plan of the house. 
Dennis's sketch was very close to the actual floor plan of Kathleen's house. If he was so drunk that he was blacking out, how did he remember the floor plan so well? That seems like more than just an oopsie that he ended up in her bedroom. If he can recall the layout, he knew which rooms were which. As Detective Smith kept questioning Dennis, he'd never admit to sexually assaulting Kathleen or to tying her up. He said he doesn't remember doing any of that part. He says what he called the demon took over. He described this demon as making him feel electricity through his body, specifically his arms, and that he doesn't remember what the demon did. Detective Smith tried to trip Dennis up into confessing that he had tied up and sexually assaulted Kathleen by giving him some exaggerated information, like how many stab wounds she had. When he said there were nine or ten, Dennis said it was bullshit, because he can see himself stabbing Kathleen in his mind. Sounds like to me, he fucked up in a story, but he had a quick recovery. He said it was only the one time that he was seeing in his mind and that he saw himself leaving after. So which is it? If you blacked out, you just happened to come back to before leaving? How do you say that you didn't do any of the stuff if you can't remember that time when you were blacked out? If the demon took over, the demon just left and Dennis was present again so that he could leave the house? The demon is really just Dennis's way of describing his rage because he said he was very upset that night and he went nuts after he made the first stab. I think he remembers everything, and he just wants to keep those gruesome memories to himself as a trophy of sorts. Detective Smith said that eventually in the interrogation, Dennis reverted to a childlike avoidance and that he even started crying, saying that he didn't do the things Detective Smith was saying he did. When Dennis was alone in the room, though, he can be heard on the recording saying, I've done it again. Now, if you remember, a little earlier I said that Dennis was on trial in Michigan in 1980 for attacking Gloria. So how could he be in Virginia to also kill Kathleen? Dennis was in Michigan on trial, meaning he wouldn't have been able to be in Virginia. Unless he had a reason that would allow him to leave the state of Michigan in September of 1980 during the trial. Which he did. Dennis was in Virginia for an annual two-week-long active drill because he was part of the U.S. Navy Reserves. After Dennis was arrested for Kathleen's murder, he ended up telling police that he was involved in Andrea's disappearance. He said that he came home from visiting relatives and he found Andrea packing a bag. He said she'd broken into his and Brenda's bedroom and was threatening to speak out about the molestation again. He said that after her threat to speak up again, he said, No, you're not, and punched her in the face. He said he hit her so hard that it caused her to fall down the stairs, and she landed at the bottom, letting out a moan before she died. The fall had broken Andrea's neck. Rather than calling for help, because according to him, he didn't want to get in trouble because he had a prior criminal record, so he said he threw the body in the neighbor's trash. Turns out, he didn't throw her in the trash. He changed his story and said that actually he had hid her body in the barn out back under a tarp and then burned her clothes before reporting her missing about an hour later. After police came and left, he says he went out with a machete to try and dismember her. He said that the machete wasn't working, so he decided to switch to an axe so that he could finish the job and cut off her legs so that her body would fit into a cylindrical barrel so that he could bury the body. Yep, seems like a very well thought out plan for something that just happened in the moment. Dennis told Brenda the truth about Andrea's disappearance on the phone while he was in jail waiting to go on trial for Kathleen's murder. If Brenda truly didn't know what had happened and she thought Andrea had run away 
What a shock that must have been to her. Police executed a search warrant on February 4th of 2020, and skeletal remains were found in the Bowman's backyard on the 200 block of 136th Avenue in Monterey Township in Allegan County. The remains were found under a concrete slab, the one that Kathy had noticed on Google Maps. Brenda told police exactly where to look because Dennis told her on a phone call where he had buried Andrea. At first, she was confused because... If you remember, after Andrea disappeared, they'd moved. And so she was wondering, how could you have buried her if we didn't even have this house yet? Andrea's remains were dismembered in four plastic bags, which were mixed with trash from her house, and then buried in a cylindrical barrel. The remains were found very close to the Bowman's house in the backyard under that concrete slab. Dennis told police that they'd find the machete under his bed, which they did. He told them that that was the machete he'd tried to dismember her with and that would probably still have her DNA on it. To confirm the remains that were found were Andrea's, Kathy gave DNA right away. The remains were confirmed to be Andrea's on March 2nd of 2020 and Dennis was charged with open murder, felony murder, first-degree child abuse, and mutilation of a body on May 15th of 2020. Dennis had been extradited to Virginia to face the charges for Kathleen. During his interrogation with Detective Smith, Dennis asked if there was any way that the death sentence could be taken off the table, and if they would do it if he would confess. He asked for a lawyer, and Detective Smith told him that because he had asked for a lawyer, he couldn't make a deal without that lawyer present or the having the prosecutor there. So Dennis decided to forego the lawyer and ended up talking with Detective Smith. Dennis was given a deal by the prosecution. In June of 2020, he pled guilty to charges of rape, murder, and burglary in relation to Kathleen. In return for his guilty plea, the death sentence was off the table. During the trial, Deputy Commonwealth Attorney Philip G. Evans read words from her father, John O'Brien. They said, quote, Though her pictures are all around me, on my desk and on the wall, I find it hard to describe Kathleen. My descriptive powers are simply inadequate to portray all of her special qualities. Unquote. Dennis was given two life sentences without possibility for parole for Kathleen's murder and rape, plus 20 years for the burglary. He was then transferred to Michigan to begin his sentence because he was about to go on trial for Andrea's murder. After he was sentenced for the murder, he ended up confessing to another attack, saying that he did, quote, bad things to her, unquote. On October 18th of 1979, a 27-year-old who will call Tilly was attacked by a man who broke into her home in Holland, Michigan. This man broke into her home near James Street and Butternut Drive, and then he bound, gagged, and sexually assaulted Tilly, and then he fled. She reported the attack to police and said the man was a white male, about 25 to 30, had sandy-colored hair, wore wire-rimmed glasses, a leather jacket, and dark pants. She said the man was about 5'6 and 150 pounds. At the time of the attack, Dennis lived down the street in a mobile home. He was never suspected in this case and was only connected after his confession to it. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations expired, so there were no charges ever filed against him on the attack of Tilly. During a preliminary hearing for Andrea's death, Dennis said, quote, Now they can dig her up and you can put her in a can on your mantle. Now everyone is going to know what a rotten son of a bitch I was, that I'd been lying to everybody the whole time, unquote. Dennis also wrote this statement, saying, quote, Dear friends and family, because of my present situation, because I love my wife and daughter, I am writing this explanation to you that my loved ones have to hear. I've confessed to the death of my daughter, Andrea. I, myself, and no one else. 
In an argument with her, I struck her, which made her stagger backward and fall down a steep staircase in a house we rented between Holland and Hamilton. Fearing more prison time and losing my loved ones, I hid the body and then disposed of it days later. I've kept this to myself for these many years so that I could live my life with Brenda and watch Vanessa grow into a successful young lady. Please, with all love, I ask you support Brenda because I have crushed her heart and left her desolate. She didn't deserve this and has always loved me beyond measures. Unquote. You know who else didn't deserve this? Andrea. She didn't deserve any of it. So please save your oh pity me and pity Brenda speech. Brenda stood by you and told Andrea that she was lying when she came to her saying that you were molesting her. Dennis became the prime suspect in an abduction and attempted rape case in February of 2021. I mean, are we surprised about that? Melissa, which is the fake name used in an article, not her real name, was attacked in September of 1989. She lived in Holland, Michigan at the time and was only six years old. Right around the same age as the kids, he was teaching at the Sunday school in 1998 when he broke into Vicky's house. Melissa was walking to a friend's house, and as she was passing a gas station, a man in a rusty red pickup truck with a white cab pulled up beside her and stared at her. This man told Melissa that he had puppies that she could go look at if she came with him. He told her that he'd already talked with her mom, and that the mom said that she could go with him to go look at the puppies. He didn't give her any time to think or to say no, because he grabbed her and pulled her into the truck. At one point during the ride, they passed a police car, and so he made her lay back so that she wouldn't be seen. She kept asking if they were almost there and could tell that something wasn't right. The man finally stopped the car, grabbed a rope, put it around her neck, and then used it to drag Melissa into the woods near Silver Creek County Campground in Hamilton, Michigan. Once the man drug six-year-old Melissa into the woods, he ripped off her blue sweater that had the words Young at Heart written on it. He tied the sweater over her mouth and then tied her hands behind her back with the rope and took off the rest of her clothes. Melissa felt him kneeling over her, but all of a sudden, some dogs started barking, and so he ran off, probably assuming someone was coming. The ruse to get her into the car with the puppies came full circle there, because he thought the puppies would be her downfall, but turns out that puppies ended up saving her. Melissa was able to untie herself, and she ran naked and barefoot to flag down a car. Police were called, and they showed up at Melissa's house later that night, and she told them what happened. She told him that she could smell the paint on him and remembered how rough and dirty hands were feeling when they were stroking her cheek and putting her hair behind her ear. She gave police enough information for them to come up with a sketch. Melissa's case eventually went cold and the statute of limitations ran out. Melissa believes that Dennis is responsible for her attack. She hoped that he'd confess just like he did with the other ones, but he never did. To Melissa, his prior charges, the fact that he lived in the area, similarities when comparing the sketches and the descriptions of the man and his truck, leave her with very little doubt that he was the one that kidnapped and tried to rape her that day. Turns out that in September of 1989, Dennis was working in a nearby dock, staining boats, which would explain the paint smell and the rough, dirty hands. He probably would have just been leaving work at the time when Melissa was abducted. Police had found a rope at the scene of Melissa's attack, which they kept in evidence, and eventually they tested it with DNA to see if it would match Dennis, but it was not a match. Even though the results said it wasn't a match, they haven't completely ruled him out as a suspect, and they're hoping that it can be retested in the future. 
On December 22nd of 2021, Dennis pled no contest to second-degree murder in Allegan County Circuit Court to Andrea's murder. The trial started January of 2022. Brenda and Dennis had been married for almost 50 years, and although she described herself as taking the marriage very seriously, she did testify against him in this trial to bring justice for Andrea. Now, normally a wife can't testify against a husband and vice versa, but according to Michigan law, if it involves a child, the rule does not apply. Brenda testified that Andrea was rebellious and had trouble in school. She confessed that Andrea had come to her, saying that Dennis was molesting her, but that she just brushed it off and told Andrea that she was lying and didn't believe her. So Andrea told multiple people what was happening to her, and it, it just nobody cared enough to help her. That's the reason people don't come forward when things like this happen, because of the reaction like this, where people don't believe them or care enough to try and do anything about it. Brenda said that the day Andrea went missing, Dennis had come to her work to tell her that she had run away and taken money from the baby's dresser. She was in tears, talking about how she made a bunch of missing person posters to try and help find Andrea because she really never suspected anything so vile. When Dennis confessed on the phone to Brenda while awaiting Kathleen's trial, Brenda said this was Dennis's version of events. He and Andrea were arguing when he slapped her, causing her to fall down the stairs, killing her. He originally said that he'd put her in a box and threw her in the trash, but eventually confessed the real story of where Andrea was. Dennis told Brenda that Andrea was right under her nose, which made her very confused. He said that Andrea was buried in the backyard the whole time, and she had the same question about how could Andrea be buried here if we didn't even have this house when she went missing. He told her that he had buried Andrea at their old house, the one that she had died at, and then when they moved about a year or two later, as soon as the papers were signed and they had that new house, he went back, dug up her body, and then moved her to the new house where he reburied her. Allegan County Prosecutor Myreen Koch called Gloria, Melissa, and Tilly to be witnesses in the trial. When she spoke about Andrea, Prosecutor Koch said, quote, Andrea was courageous and strong. She was someone who stood up for herself even in the face of abuse. Andrea lost her life. She lost her potential, and she was given only a series of nevers. She would never go to prom or graduate high school. She would never go to college or find a career that she loved. She would never get married or have children of her own. She would never enjoy growing up and growing old, surrounded by family and friends who loved her. Unquote. On February 7, 2022, Dennis was given an additional 35 to 50 years in prison on top of his life sentences for the murder of Andrea. He was already sentenced to life for Kathleen's murder, meaning he'll never truly serve any sentence for Andrea's murder. He'll serve out his life sentences in Virginia. Allegan County Circuit Judge Margaret Zugis Baker said this was the most disturbing case she'd handled in 40 years, saying, quote, His numerous assaults, his behavior in this case, other convictions all indicate Mr. Bowman is a serious, dangerous man that has harmed many communities, many families, unquote. Judge Baker said during Dennis's sentencing, quote, It's impossible to even articulate the words to describe what he has done. Reading what he has done is sickening, unquote. Dennis was sent back to Virginia to serve his sentences on February 17th of 2022. He is currently serving out his life sentence at the River North Correctional Center, which is a medium security prison in Grayson County, Virginia. Kathy said she's going to try for custody of Andrea's remains so that she can have a proper burial as Alexis Badger, which is her birth name. Kathy said she's sorry she had to give her up for adoption, saying, quote, 
I'm having her cremated and bringing her home with me. She's my child. She belongs with me. No mother would do otherwise. And then when I'm buried, she'll be buried with me. Unquote. After looking into more unsolved cases, Kathy and Carl suspect Dennis was involved in a couple of other unsolved murders. The first one is the murder and sexual assault of Deborah Polinsky in 1977. Deborah was a 20-year-old from Holland, Michigan. One day, she just didn't show up to work, so one of her co-workers went to her house and found that Deborah had been stripped, sexually assaulted, and stabbed. Her German shepherd was standing guard over the dead body. The second they suspect Dennis was involved in is the 1970 murder of Shelley Speet Mills. Shelley was a 19-year-old newlywed who lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Her mom brought her lunch and found that Shelley had been stabbed to death. Some others were right around the time that Melissa was abducted and attacked by Dennis. One was a 13-year-old girl who was nearly pulled off the street and abducted. There was also a 9-year-old girl who was stopped and blocked while riding her bike by a man who opened his car door asking her to get in so they could go and get some ice cream. There were also two siblings, a 9-year-old and 11-year-old, who were walking near Van Rolte Elementary School when a man in his 30s stopped them while he was driving a red truck. The man was wearing blue jeans, a blue winter jacket, and offered them money to come and get in his car. They said no, so he got out and chased them on foot. Dennis's sister-in-law gave Kathy and Carl pictures of a truck that Dennis used to drive, which apparently looked very similar to the descriptions of the red truck that was in a lot of the statements from these victims. A lot of these make sense. The time, the area, the methods, the ages. I can see why they think he's involved in these cases. I wonder if there are any other from the time after he was released for breaking into Vicky's house and his arrest for Kathleen's murder. I mean, that's a 20-year span. Someone as brutal and evil as him doesn't normally just stop what they're doing. I guess we'll only know if he ever confesses to more crimes, which I doubt he really will. I suggest you go to the Facebook page that Kathy runs, which is called Justice for Andrea. She posts pictures and has a bunch of information on there because she has all the criminal records. And that's it. That's all I have for you this week. I want to hear your thoughts on the case. I know it was a lot and there was a lot of connections between things and speculation. So let me know what you think. Talk with me about your thoughts on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Dark Happy Pod. I'll be posting pictures like always on Instagram so that you can see who I talked about today. You can find this and all future episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. You can find all of this information all in one place at the website, mydarkhappyplace.com. I'll be here next week with another episode. Bye!